45 minutes or whatever. And then, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like, or it's usually five minutes and then you have okay. to apologize, right? Okay, here we go. Um, in three, two, one. It's Mark Evans, and you're listening to Marketing Spark. According to the popular adage, content is king. That may or not may not be true, but many B2B SaaS companies have enthusiastically embraced content over the past 18 months. Content marketing took on more importance when conferences disappeared. And many companies scrambled to not only create content, but create content that engaged, educated, encouraged, and made an impact. As the CEO of Wordable, Brad Smith has a front row seat in the world of content marketing. And it should be noted that his front row seat is located in Hawaii, which is a pretty sweet place. Sorry. And it should be noted that his front row seat is located in Hawaii, which is a pretty sweet place to operate. Welcome to Marketing Spark, Brad. Thank you, Mark. Looking forward to this. Let's start by talking about the content marketing landscape over the past 18 months. As a content creator, it has been fascinating to see how many brands have jumped on the content bandwagon, some of them successfully, and some of them appear to be going through the motions and creating content for the sake of content. What's your take on how the landscape has evolved since COVID emerged in March of 2020? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, I would definitely agree with your point. And if anything, it, it almost like things got accelerated. Uh, the, the trends, the underlying trends were already there. I think they just were sped up and, and made even more intense. So you see things like uh, huge publishers, for instance, doing um, affiliate content. So you see big websites uh, getting better. And, and what that does is it kind of raises the bar. And so not only do you have like more competition for like your direct competition that everyone thinks about, you have more competition indirectly. So you're now ranking against Amazon or Forbes or whatever, even if you have nothing to do, you know, business-wise with those people, you're competing in a sense of, uh, of, of search engine, you know, rankings, uh, the actual results on the page. Um, other issues too, like you have Google uh, actively taking spots away. Uh, f- through a few different ways. So one, they're doing uh, more you know, paid listings on a search engine result page. Um, two, they're doing uh, instant answers. So what they're doing essentially is like scraping your content. If you, le- if you search for like how to make an old fashioned, you're going to see a recipe show up and it's going to be scraped from some website that's already ranking. Someone's going to get their answer. They're going to get their recipe and they don't have to actually click into the page to read uh, whatever it is that's on that site. And so, you know, if that if that person's monetizing through ads or something else, then then they're in trouble. Um, so you have all these kind of like issues that are all coming to a head, and and what we're seeing is a uh, a greater divergence between like the, the you know the haves and the have-nots, for lack of a better expression. Like the the amount of focus and attention going to like the first few uh, positions on a page when you're trying to rank something is is becoming much greater. You might see uh, a, a more skewed landscape, whereas Anything else that's not good enough or is just kind of mediocre or average to your point, uh, it's almost just getting uh, it's just getting pumped out into the black hole that, that isn't getting seen or clicked or shared or linked to or whatever. So it sounds like content marketing has become a more challenging landscape. And I'm curious about what has surprised you. You know, what's separated companies that have thrived amid fierce competition for eyeballs? What are they doing? And do you have any examples of brands that are doing content marketing well? That's a really good question. Uh, I definitely have a few examples of companies doing it well. I think one thing that has surprised me is how much 
big websites are still able to leverage their brand and their domain authority to rank for things in categories that they might not have that much to do with. Uh, and so you see this a lot, again, in going back to like a publishing example or affiliate spaces, just as a point of comparison, where you might have uh, huge websites like a Forbes or someone else ranking for something like, you know, invoicing software reviews or something just completely kind of random that you would you wouldn't think would have anything to do with that. And they're they're starting to rank really well with relatively average content. So that's kind of like the bad news, I think, in a way where it's it's kind of like a trend that I don't love to see because again, I don't I don't want to see poor content be rewarded <laughs> that greatly. Um, but but the good news is you do have a lot of like uh, you know smaller smaller in a sense of uh, uh, of where they're starting, but smaller SaaS companies uh, being able to do content really well and go deeper. So if 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 that example, if the Forbes example is they're going like broad but shallow. I think what you're seeing today is a lot of uh, really good companies being able to go really, really deep in their you know, categories or in their spaces uh, and still do really well. Now, I'm not sure if this is a fair question, but what do you see as the keys to breaking through when everyone is pumping out content? Is it quality content? And I put quality in quotation marks because yeah. it's a very subjective uh, kind of thing. Um, is it SEO does it depend on having the right strategic plan? It is a, is it a matter of luck? I mean, what are some of the variables that that you see as critical when you're trying to, you know, emerge um, amid a content tsunami? Yeah, definitely. I think it's. I like to think of it as a balanced scorecard. So you have uh, the brand and the website strength overall. That and you have like the strategy and the strategic kind of. Uh, strategic viewpoint behind it of like where you're going and why you have the content itself. So how it's written, whether or not there's subject matters, uh, experts, uh, included in that or not. Again, you can tell pretty quickly if something's kind of generic and watered down or if it's really interesting and nuanced and kind of balanced and complex. Um, then you have just beyond the actual writing itself, you have things like, uh, you know, multimedia. So images, podcasts, video, how is that being included in that? Then you have the actual nerdy SEO stuff. So everything from topical authority to the actual keywords you're researching to the link building, uh, link building and PR and distribution. So I think if you if you think about it, the, the good news is if you think about all this stuff, like how marketing and advertising and promotion used to be back in the 60s, it's pretty similar. So like I just gave you an example of distribution. What we're doing today isn't that different. It's just kind of like a, a new medium. I think the important point is figuring out how you you get all the things to line up. So if we're talking about how do you distribute content? Uh, are you working? Are, do you have PR teams working together with content teams? Do you have advertising teams working with uh, content teams? Like those disconnects are often where things fall. It, it, but the better you can like align all those things, uh, typically the greater success we see with like lots of the larger companies we work with. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that coordination and having a strategic plan is so important because many companies look at content as simply creating content and then they forget about SEO, distribution, identifying and connecting with influencers. So there's so many variables that go into content marketing success that a lot of companies just don't take into account. I guess what I'm curious about, who's doing content well? I mean, really well. Is there content that you want to read because it's because it's interesting or compelling, and you can you can recommend or suggest one of your clients as a, an example of a company that really is standing out from the crowd. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I was going to say a loaded question for sure, because I could just sit here and uh, mention all of our work. <laughs> right, but yeah. uh, but um, so we work with Monday.com. I think they're doing an amazing job. I think one of the challenges they face is uh, they their tool could work for almost any category, any like B2B category. So you, we might be doing content on project management, but we might also be doing pro- uh we might also be doing content on agile software development. We might also be doing uh, something completely different. I say I think that's extremely challenging, and it means you're doing not just quality content but high quantity too. And that brings up a whole host of other issues, like well, how do you get super high quantity uh, without letting the quality bar drop? And that's through a bunch of other you know uh, intense things like operations and processes and role specialization. Um, so it kind of just brings up a whole slew of other issues where a lot of companies that do content well today, especially smaller ones, they have like a good writer or a couple good writers and they're, they're heavily reliant on individuals and talent, which is a good thing. Um, but I think w- for some of the larger companies or like the hyper growth companies, what you see is they're more reliant on uh, like the machine and building out the machine and the factory and the assembly line of the SEO person works with the strategy person who hands it off to the writer, who hands it off to the editor, who hands it off to the optimizer, who hands it to the producer. And there's like this this uh, this very detailed um, assembly line, very kind of like old school manufacturing mentality of um, operation that I think is really important in today's environment. And not enough marketers and marketing teams are strong in that area, if that makes sense. So if you look at what money.com is doing, and I see their ads all the time, so it's it's hard to escape them. Yeah. Are there two or three things that they've embraced that has helped their content marketing thrive? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, again, it, it goes back to, um, from the very beginning, a very strong focus on like who is their customer and why. So like who, what segments convert the best? Uh, who has the highest lifetime value as a segment and and figuring and then backing that into uh, what like key categories, for example, should we even be publishing in at the very beginning? Because they could be publishing on everything and anything. Like, how do we actually focus and narrow down um, mm-hmm. from there? It's then figuring out, OK, well, how do we actually target keywords and spaces that we can win? And so this is something I like to like harp on. But and again, it's kind of an old cliche, but like measure twice, cut once in today's like competitive kind of SERP environment. Uh, the outsized results, let's say, if you look at click-through rates on a search engine result page, let's say 60, 70, 80%, go to like the top three or four results. So right. it's, it's not good enough to like, to top out at position eight on a SERP. You might as well like not even, uh, it, it sounds good because you're on the first page, oh. but you're probably getting like a, a sliver of any traffic. Whereas if you can get up into like the top five, top four, top three, it becomes uh, heavily skewed where you're getting all of a sudden 50, 60, 70% uh, of the action. So if if you're applying that to like a much broader uh, content strategy where you are publishing in a, in a high quantity, it's super, super important that you're making sure that you're publishing um, not just like on the biggest keywords in your space or uh, the ones with the most commercial intent. Yes, those things are important, but they might take years to actually... Uh, to rank for. So, so what, what are we targeting and why? Meaning like, let's actually create content that we know we can win and that we know we can rank for within the next six months. Cause that's going to give us the biggest boost to then um, kind of stair step our way up, up to that other competitive stuff. You know, I love that piece of advice because I've been working with a lot of B2B SaaS clients looking at how to leverage content marketing and it, and you're right. I mean, you, you want to win in particular keywords or phrases because there's so much competition out there 
that it's going to take you forever to rank for the top keywords. And that's just not a strategy that's going to produce ROI in the short term. No, totally. You've hinted at it a little bit, but what do you see as the biggest mistakes that B2B companies make when it comes to content marketing? I suspect the list could be fairly extensive. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so that's one that we just touched on uh, is competing for the wrong things at the wrong times. So knowing that it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Uh, as an example, Wordable is really small. We just, we just acquired it about a year ago. Traffic was trending down. I think we were at like 5,000 monthly visits when we acquired it. So super small. One of the first problems that we were facing is, okay, well, we can't go after the biggest keywords in our space right now. Uh, mm -hmm. long, long term, we can, but it might take you know two, three years realistically to, to rank for that stuff. So in the short term, we need to do something else. And we need to take a, take a different approach and go after keywords we can rank for. And I think now we're up to like 30,000, 40,000 a month uh, in terms of monthly traffic. And it was just this whole stair-step approach of, okay, we're going to go after this, this less competitive stuff first because we know we can win there. And we're going to rank well for it. And once our website's bigger, once we have more links, once we have more content, once we have more topical authority in these areas, we can come back and, and rank for that competitive stuff. The other big one we touched on already too, which is um, operations. So I think marketers and marketers are marketers don't have an issue with creativity. Uh, that's what that's why we all do this. That's why we're all like in this in this field. They have an issue with uh, processes and all the boring stuff, all the operations, all the role specialization. All the how do you coordinate handoffs from with a writer in one time zone to an editor in another time zone, especially in today's environment where everything's asynchronous? Like, how do you iron out all those little kinks? Because that's that's where the ball gets dropped. Like, one person you might have a writer who's really good, or you might have a marketer who's really good. Uh, they have to hand it off to someone three, four time zones away, if not more, um, and then that person has to hand it off to somebody else. How are you actually doing that to make sure this person's waking up and is ready to go and has everything they need? And has their you know their stuff completed by the person before them, um, without those those two people having to jump on Zoom every five minutes. I, I think that's the that's the challenge from a like blocking and tackling standpoint that a lot of companies are facing today because they are trying to ramp up content and do all this stuff in the absence of conventions and conferences and other things. Uh, but yet we're all forced to again uh, be more reliant on asynchronous communication. So we've talked about the importance of content and how to approach it. I want to explore a few other areas, including building a B2B content team, generating ideas and distribution. How should B2B companies approach content production? On one hand, they could use freelancers, agencies, or contractors. But if they want people who drink the proverbial Kool-Aid, many companies want in-house writers. So where should B2B companies start when it comes to creating content? For sure. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that they all have their own like strengths and weaknesses. So there's no like right or wrong an answer necessarily. Uh, as you mentioned, with drinking the Kool-Aid, internal people are usually best for all the intangibles. So they understand the unique point of view. They understand the differentiation and positioning of the product versus other ones in the space. They understand all that stuff intimately. Their problem is usually output uh, and production. So internal people usually get caught up with meetings and Slack and uh, whatever, proofreading someone else's presentation, like they get pulled in all these different directions that um, you're not able to publish a ton of stuff on the back of a lot of in-house writers unless you're spending a ton of money on it because it, it, it can get uh, as insanely expensive as you can imagine. So the, the challenge is always, well, freelancers offer you that flexibility. You can ramp them up and down. If you want to do a big content push for three, six months uh, and then switch gears down the road, it's easy to kind of like build that team out let them run for a little bit and then ramp them down over time. You don't have to deal with the same, uh, you know, internal HR headaches and other things to like ramp people up and down. 
the problem with freelancers is uh, is usually getting everyone on the same page and making sure you have consistency across whatever, you know, three, four, five, 10, 20 people uh, who are all external and have their own things and their own lives and their own clients. And uh, that's incredibly challenging because you, you spend a ton of time that isn't always accounted for on project management, on editing, on, on things that are like the, the soft and tangibles to get all those people together. Agencies offer a different approach of like, you usually get skill sets you might not have internally. So for example, when someone hires our agency, they get strategy people, they get SEO people, they get not just the writers and editors, but also designers, video people. Um, again, trying to hire all those roles externally, or excuse me, internally would be super cost prohibitive and, and not always like realistic. Agencies tend to be more expensive on the surface. But again, if you if you account for some of those things like the extra manpower, so to speak, uh, of management and everything internally, it becomes expensive. So I guess the point is, where are you at in terms of resources, in terms of internal team already? So do you internally have the people in place to manage a team of writers? Uh, if not, then you're probably better off going with something like an agency. Conversely, if, you're, if your problem is more bottom of the funnel, not top of the funnel, meaning if your problem is more um, conversions and, and doing things that speak the language of the customer and creating case studies and other content around that type of stuff, um, you're usually better with internal people because it's easier to get them on board with that as opposed to external agencies, which, which might give, or, or freelancers, which might give you the horsepower that's better suited to scaling out like top of the funnel kind of content, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's, it's great advice. And I can tell you from personal experience that finding good freelancers is a huge challenge. And then there's a lot of work that I find that goes into editing their copy because they just don't know the brand tone, the brand yep. language, and they just don't have the domain expertise yep. to really nail it. So there are pros and cons to every single angle. But let's assume that you want to build an in-house content team. Where do you start? What's the first move to make to get the ball rolling in the right direction? Like, What type of person should you hire out of the gate? Yeah, definitely. I try to urge uh, role specialization early just so you kind of get in that mindset. So in other words, don't just hire, don't just think you're going to hire like a couple of writers and then like let them go. Uh, you really need someone who's like a content manager. Sometimes these people can can do multiple things. So sometimes a content manager can also edit. What I, what I don't like to see is when you try to make a, a good writer a content editor or manager, because it's right. it's almost like the Michael Scott problem of taking a good salesperson and making him a, a manager. Like these, their skill sets are often uh, don't overlap. So in other words, a content manager is really good at building out these processes, building out a style guide to make sure here is how our brand voice should look and sound and feel and all those things. Like I said, they, they can often edit. Uh, they can often also write. But again, it's it doesn't always go in the same direction where you, you're not always going to get a couple good writers who then have like their project manager hat too. Because that person is also going to be doing keyword research. They're also going to be doing both like the qualitative uh, brand voice and, and style, but also the the quantitative of like metrics and figuring out, okay, now how are we going to actually promote this thing too? Um, writers, even like, you know, even really good writers don't always have that skill set. Really good writers thrive on ingenuity, on saying the same thing multiple different ways. And so they're, they're almost like rewarded internally for for purposefully doing things differently each time. And that's like the opposite of how you want like a content team to actually run. What are the different ways to assess the performance of your content team members? You know, what separates the good ones from everyone else? So you could look at the standard KPIs, you know, time on site, 
uh, click throughs on CTAs, that kind of thing. I mean, those are all very data driven, very uh, quantitative. But how do you assess, how do you balance quantitative and qualitative when it comes to content production? Because a, a big part of it is creativity, yep. you know, thinking outside the box, um, approaching content from different angles so that your content is engaging. From where you sit, what separates the good ones from everybody else? Yeah, definitely. It's it is hard, like you're saying, because it's it's there's it's like a little Venn diagram that you want. So you want you want someone who is a subject matter expert, especially if you're hiring them in house. Otherwise, again, it's probably not worth the time or the money uh, to hire in house unless they're a subject matter expert in the space already. Um, so that's a critical component because what you don't want is your content to sound hollow and generic and watered down. You want there to be nuance involved. You want that person to be able to consider like different complex factors, especially the more like B2B or complex sales your product gets, uh, the more that's important because your audience is, tends to be more sophisticated. Your buyers, your customers tend to be a lot more sophisticated and they're going to see through that pretty quickly. So subject matter expertise is one, but writing and style is the other one. So is there a voice meaning like, does this person actually sound do they write like they sound when they're speaking? Because when, when I'm talking right now, I sound very choppy. Uh, and I sound, especially if you look at a podcast transcription and then you think you're just going to publish that directly. Uh, sometimes it doesn't work, as you know, because it, it just, it comes across as choppy. You we switch topics too much when we talk. You want a little bit of that in the actual writing itself. So you don't want like super overly formulaic stuff. You don't want super uh, formalized wording and phrasing, even if you have a company culture that's very formal, you still want something that's relatable when, when you're reading it. Because again, someone's trying to read information, educational content, whatever, and they need to feel some emotional engagement to that. They don't feel motion, emotional engagement to like a Wikipedia page or something that's just kind of fact, fact driven and dry and technical, you know? And then the other component, like you said, is some knowledge of SEO. And so either if, if the writer doesn't have that already, that's where it's good to have some sort of content manager or similar who's able to help structure how the content should look. And so I think we're going to touch on like promotion and distribution in a second. But I think one of the important points to touch on here is that if you don't structure content properly from the very beginning, you're only going to make your life super difficult when it comes to promote it and to, to try and rank it down the line. Meaning if uh, you're writing how to make iced coffee, a, a piece of content on how to make to make it really, really basic, how to make iced coffee. If you try to get like your product page to rank for that, it's never going to work. So in other words, the actual structure of that content, it doesn't line up with search intent from the very beginning. So you're leading the writer down a, a bad path that two years from now uh, is never going to help you rank for that term. Uh, and that becomes an issue for the promotion aspect, um, you know, at the very end. So that's the little Venn diagram of like subject matter expertise, writing ability and kind of copywriting or voice or whatever you want to call it, like some some interesting and engaging way of actually getting the words out. And then uh, and then some sort of background or knowledge of like a solid SEO foundation. That sounds like a classic infographic for yeah. <laughs> creating a content marketing team that resonates. I like that. I like the concept of illustrating what it takes to create good content because content is subjective yep. and it can be, you know, it's quantitative and qualitative. So that's a, that's a really good insight. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, like a lot of people these days. I see a lot of posts about the challenges of coming up with ideas for content. You know, I spent many years as a reporter and and I was trained to see story angles from all kinds of different perspectives. You know, I understand that content marketing is a beast that needs to be continually fed. 
from where you sit, how do brands continually come up with content ideas, yeah. uh, let alone content that they're going to publish? I mean, what are some of the, the key processes or systems that need, they need to have in place to make sure that the machine is fed and is always fed? Because you yeah. can, if you run out of content ideas, then you're, you're dead in the water. For sure. Yeah. First, if you, if you do it right, you should never run out of ideas. I struggle from the opposite problem where I have too many spreadsheets of like potential areas to go into that I'll probably never get to. Um, I think first and foremost, more marketers need to work in, when I say work in, I mean in air quotes, work in customer support. And the, and I learned this like the hard way early on uh, at a travel company where I was kind of on the front lines from a digital and social perspective. And I was kind of forced to deal with like customer problems and inquiries and everything. Uh, and so I got good or, you know, had to get good at talking to customer service, customer support, operations and learning more and trying to figure out like, just there are so many problems and issues that people run into without you even being aware of it. And unless you are actually reading customer support emails, or unless you're actually reading these problems firsthand, or you're reading your Captera reviews, and your or your G2 reviews, and taking the good and the bad, uh, unless you're actually, and again, that can even go to your sales team too, unless you're actually in, in talking to customers or getting that feedback from the people who are talking to customers like sales, like operations, like customer support, uh, you're not, you're not really getting the full picture. You're getting a very narrow view of who or what you think customers are. Yes. You should definitely also be doing the things like jumping into your favorite keyword research tool and looking at adjacent spaces, all, all those like marketing tips and tactics that people love to talk about is like, Oh yeah, go to answer and type in a keyword and it'll show you all the related questions. Like those things are good, but, but you should also just be looking at like, what are customers and, you know, actually trying to do with your product and what's holding them back. And there should be no shortage of like, potential topics and ideas that come from that. The challenge is always, how do you make those types of topics that are very customer centric from a, a support or pain point uh, arena link back to the SEO? Because again, if we're going to the content and expense of, or excuse me, if we're going to all the effort and expense of producing content and, it, and you're hiring subject matter experts, this stuff gets really expensive really quickly. So the only way it's worth it in the long run is if you do have that solid foundation of SEO. So you know, it's going to, it's going to produce results, not just tomorrow when you share it on LinkedIn or tomorrow when you share it as a, with your support team or on a webinar, but like two, three years from now uh, to rank well too. So I think that's always the challenge in my mind is how do you, how do you tie the two worlds together of like all the potential keywords and topics you can go after by doing all the classic things of searching around, okay, well, my product is, you know, whatever, best, uh, my, my product's a CRM product. So therefore it has these features. Those are basic topics. From there, it's like, okay, well, how do people find this? It's going to be, they're, they're searching for comparisons. So best CRM product alternatives, sales first versus HubSpot CRM. Like what are all the all, kind of more classic affiliate publishing? And then back out from there, like, well, do you, is your sales team dropping the ball because their email reply templates suck? So email reply templates becomes the keyword. And then you just keep like going broader and broader and broader. Again, how do you connect all that kind of classic keyword research oriented stuff with with the stuff that your sales team is is coming up with, with the stuff that your customer support team is coming up with? Yeah, I think it's a it's a complicated and time consuming balancing act between customer insight and reviews and SEO. And I think personally that a lot of marketers don't 
talk to their customers enough. They don't sit on sales calls. They don't uh, read the transcripts from customer success calls or customer service calls, and they operate blind. I mean, yeah. you can't solely depend on SEO for your content ideas because then you're just delving into the data and you're ignoring the real world and real people. So there's so many variables when it comes to content marketing. And I find a lot of marketers just focus on the content. The other area that I want to talk to you about, and this is something that uh, a guy named Ross Simmons advocates for all the time on LinkedIn and Twitter is content distribution. It's one thing to publish content. It's another to make sure that enough of the right people see it. Uh, in fact, I believe that one of the new and hot marketing jobs will be the head of content distribution. What are your thoughts about content distribution and the approach the B2B companies need to take to make sure their content gets seen and has the impact that they want? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, I think it's hard and getting harder, to your point, because of uh, all the noise. I think that's one of the challenges. Another challenge is you have a lot of, you have a lot of people trying to do the same things. So like if you, um, have you heard of the, the law of shitty click-through rates? I think no. that was a concept from uh, Andrew Chen who works at Uber and a bunch of other like startups. And basically his, his point was like, if you look at the click-through rate of banner ads, when banner ads first came out, it was amazing. Like it was really good. And if you look at the click-through rate on banner ads today, it's awful. And the point, and then you could, you could draw that comparison across other things where if, if you remember Facebook marketing, like even 10, 15 years ago, you could like gate uh, pages. So you could like force people to like your page to then, uh, to, to then like get some incentive. And then the organic reach and distribution was so high at the time you could, you could kill it. You could do so well just doing the light getting game of like put a coupon or whatever behind a discount behind the light gate or do a contest behind the light gate. You have to like to enter uh, and then share stuff on LinkedIn. And like, you know, a huge percentage of the people who already like you actually see your, your results. Again, con contrast that today. Uh, no one sees your results unless they're paid on LinkedIn or excuse me, on Facebook. Um, you've got to pretty much like pay to promote everything, which again, is good and bad. It's just uh, the tactics have changed a little bit. But the point is, uh, if once something starts working well and everyone starts doing it from a distribution standpoint, it often gets a lot harder, a lot more expensive, or the reach starts dropping off. And so I, one of the things, again, that I like to harp on is going back to our point earlier of don't target keywords, for instance, that you can't rank for in the short term. Mm -hmm. When you're doing that initial keyword research and putting the content ideas together, you should know how you're already going to distribute it. So if I need, if I'm looking at a competitive keyword and I want to rank for it in whatever, six months, 12 months, and I look at, okay, it has a hundred links or the, the average competition, let's say has a hundred quality links to this individual piece of content. I better know how I'm going to get those 100 plus links to this piece of content before I ever create it. Because otherwise, again, I'm just going to set myself up for failure. So how am I going to do that? Am I going to do, is it going to be related to a promotion? Is it going to be related to a product launch? Am I going to run a contest? Can I do, uh, can I do a big PR push? Can I, we do guest posts? Can we do podcasts? Can we do, uh, can we do like paid, uh, a paid campaign on LinkedIn or Facebook? Can we tie it in with webinars? Like what are all the potential tactics that we might already be doing or that we might already be good at? Um, and then the other thing I like to, to really focus on for distribution, especially for B2B companies is with our example of link building, you see all these blog posts that say like 101 link building tactics to whatever start this year. 
Uh, you don't need 101 link building tactics. You need like two or three and you need to do them really, really well. So don't, mm -hmm. you need to understand like what your organization's good at and stick to your strengths and you need to do it better than everyone else and at a bigger scale than everyone else. So, you know, as a content company, we're really good at like a couple things and, and we're really good at like content in the B2B space. I'm not going to pick up TikTok or I'm not going to jump on the latest social bandwagon because I know that I'm not well suited to that and our company's strengths aren't well suited to that. So don't don't get shiny, you know, tactic syndrome. Don't don't chase those wells because you're not going to be able to do them as well or better than the people who are going to do them well. Um, you need to kind of stick to your strengths because of these issues like super, a ton of competition because of the, the organic, you know, reach falling off. You can still see success with those channels in different places. Uh, you just need to be able to do it better than everyone else. And again, that, that goes back to maybe your own internal team, your own internal structure and, and what you what your brand is is known for and good at in this space. Two final questions. One, what does Wordable do? And two, how did you end up living in Hawaii? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So Wordable, I'll take the easy one first. Uh, Wordable, uh, we we were a customer of Wordable and we I run an agency that does like three, 400 articles a month. So we create and publish and promote like three, 400 articles a month. Um, we found that we were spending like on average 30 to 60 minutes uploading, formatting, optimizing an individual piece of content. Doing that times three, 400 articles a month uh, is very costly and time consuming, especially when you consider like who on your team has to actually do that. Well, so what you often see is a lot of teams, even if they do produce a lot of content, it often just like sits somewhere in Google Docs or uh, you know whatever, wherever they end up writing. You have this huge lag and bottleneck between creating the content and editing it and getting it reviewed and then actually getting it live to, to hopefully, you know, start ranking and, and producing results for you. So Wordable moves content from Google Docs to a CMS, basically. So um, it'll kind of do it in seconds. You can do it in bulk. Um, and then we'll also start applying a lot of the on-page optimization that companies should be doing, but don't always. So compressing images, opening links in a new tab to keep readers on site, um, being able to select the author and category and all that extra, all the extra stuff you usually have to do when you put a piece of content into a content management system. Um, again, to like get it kind of published ready, Wordable will kind of automate all that that messy stuff for you. So that's what Wordable does. Uh, second question was Hawaii. So we had we had been visiting here and traveling here for a while with my family, and we've always loved it. Like most people who've been here, and uh, we've always talked about trying to live here. And our our trips get getting longer and longer and longer. And so finally, we decided to come out and just to try living here. We kind of bounced around different islands for a little bit to see where we'd want to live and where we thought was a good place for our family and our young kids and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, as you can imagine, it's it's pretty great. Uh, it's it's remote. Amazon takes super long. That's, uh, that's one bummer. Uh, you can't get things in a day or two. So that's kind of one downside. Uh, there's not a lot of nightlife. It's pretty quiet. So you got to be comfortable with these things. But I think once you once you know, once you find that sweet spot and and kind of can get into it, then you realize it's a pretty uh, amazing place to uh, to live. And I guess, as you mentioned off the top, as long as you're willing to get up at five o'clock in the morning to do podcast <laughs> interviews, <laughs> that works as well. Yeah, definitely. You could. I don't know if you could, if this is video, but you could see like my uh, fluorescent office lights above me. Some of them are just kicking on because you got to like it takes them a while to warm up. And uh, yeah, it's about it's what 5:40 right now am so yeah you got to got to get comfortable with waking up in the middle of the night uh, but you can you can get done early and uh, when you're at by the beach at 1 p.m. 2 p.m. it's it's not bad life is good yeah life is good <laughs> well thanks for all the great insight brad uh, where can people learn more about you and wordable 
definitely go to wordable.io is the best place. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn at, I think my, my uh, name is BS Marketer because those are my initials. And also uh, marketers are full of BS sometimes. So it's <laughs> yeah. kind of punny. And then, uh, and then yeah, we, I also run um, uh, and I'm involved in two agencies, a content production agency called Codeless and a, a link building company, link building a PR company called Usurp. So wordable.io is usually the best place to start uh, for all that fun stuff. Thanks for listening to another episode of Marketing Spark. If you enjoyed the conversation, leave a review, subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and share via social media. To learn more about how I help B2B SaaS companies as a fractional CMO, strategic advisor, and coach, send an email to mark at marketingspark.co. I'll talk to you next time.